Vandals at the Golden Gate, Part 2. Oh, there's so much in the world that is beautiful. Oh, I have seen plainly the works of the Almighty. In Dallas, I watched a man gnaw chicken bones he pulled from a trash can, right there on the street in front of everyone. But all the pilgrims rushed past him without a glance, preoccupied. He didn't seem to notice us either, and when finished with the bones, sucked each fingertip clean one by one, dried his hands with a crumpled napkin he also pulled from the trash, and then walked on. I prayed a rosary there in Dealey Plaza, for Kennedy and Oswald at first, for Tippett and Ruby and all the dead. But soon, in the sequence of the prayers, felt the distractions of the past fall away and watched instead the crowd search the faces for a sign. When you visualized a man or woman carefully, Graham Greene wrote, you could always begin to feel pity. That was a quality God's image carried with it. All of us born to die, and each of us haunted, by the ghosts of the past, by the ghosts of our own unavoidable passing. How much of what's at work in the world, the striving, the strife, the mad idolatry of progress, works to hide the simple fact of our own mortality. We simply can't believe it could be so, that the world keeps on moving, still, even as the body stops. Yet the sadness of our time is not solely or even primarily in death. It is instead tied to a puzzling sense, a not-so-secret conviction, that we were born too late. Damned, as George Steiner declared, by memories of events, of hopes, in which we had taken no personal part. Metamorphoses of the historical landscape so violent as to acquire a simplified magnitude of legend. When the United States invaded Iraq in the spring of 2003, I was 25 years old and married less than two years. Still living back in New Hampshire then, as newlyweds, our first apartment was across the street from a disused textile mill on the banks of the Merrimack River, a building long since abandoned and left to rot, with weeds sprouting from the roofline. At times, late at night, a flock of seagulls circled around its ruined central tower, and the crying of the birds, echoing off the brick of the mill yard, sounded like the screams of children, shrill and strange. The apartment itself was small but nice, cluttered, full of books, houseplants, and second-hand furniture. Typical, really, a young, middle-class couple just starting out. Our back door opened onto a small concrete porch and common yard where we sat in warmer weather, drinking rum daiquiris and sharing awkward conversation with the elderly Greek woman who lived beside us. I've been here longest, she told us, nodding her head. Across the way, he moved in after me. He's not doing well, been very sick. Up above, her son, he's sick too. He lives with her. She cares for him. She'd go quiet a while, not hearing or ignoring our questions, 
and perhaps the neighborhood children would run by, stopping by our fence to pick some of the flowers growing there. You kids, quit that, she'd yell, suddenly on her feet and tottering slowly to the edge of the porch. Those flowers are for beauty, not for picking. They'd run from her, glaring, and she'd turn to us, her lips and jaw trembling with fear and rage. Those kids, they're so bad, and the parents don't do nothing. I told them they got a playground right down the street. They should go play there. The neighborhood had changed, left her lonely and bewildered. The world moved too quickly. Some days I found her standing on her porch with her hand on the railing, sighing, staring at the sky. She sometimes brought us cans of peas or loaves of weak old bread as gifts. And in those encounters, I would avert my eyes, trying to avoid a glimpse I felt of something shameful. Such a nice couple, she said. Good people. Truth be told, we were as lonely and bewildered as she. So much more has changed since those days in our own lives and the life of the nation. It's difficult to remember how bad it really was, how lost we were. Children of decline, remember. And so even as history began to move again in bold steps, broad strokes, we felt ourselves isolated, listless, as though admiring the affairs of creation from behind a thick pane of glass, much like the shock and awe delivered unto Baghdad, yet delivered to America and her allies through the television glass of cable news. I went to a rally to protest the war. A few hundred peace activists, college students, and concerned citizens out in front of the New Hampshire State House even an organizer from the AFL-CIO. It was remarkably strange, because even though I went ostensibly to protest the invasion, I realized as I wandered the crowd that I also went to the rally, and perhaps even more so, because I expected something special to happen. What's more, I could tell, meeting the eyes of the other protesters, marching awkwardly back and forth with their cleverly worded placards, that they expected something special too. Because this is what you did when there was a war. You marched, you took a stand, you raised your voice, and then... And then what? Nothing happened. Everyone kind of drifted away toward the end of it, bewildered, nonplussed. Could it be, I wonder, that the killing in Iraq was beside the point. Important, yes, no doubt, but secondary. That what we truly wanted that day, as though gathered there in some strange fit of cultural peak, was to deny the past as past, to deny its highs and lows and their particularity as inaccessible to us. That we were there because we wanted because we needed, in the throes of our ennui, to imagine ourselves in the news footage and photographs from, say, the fall of 1969, 
the second anti-war moratorium march that drew 500,000 people to our nation's capital. To recreate and represent its realities, the images of a thriving culture as they'd been passed down to us, and so open ourselves to all the impossible promise of that past and the present. My God, had we gathered in front of the State House that day to protest not Iraq, but Vietnam? No, that's not right. Not to protest Vietnam, but to protest our own regret, that aforesaid ennui, our palpable and wretched separation from the glory days of American yore. The past drove rat's teeth into the gray pulp of the present, Steiner noted. It exasperated. It sowed wild dreams. Something in the tumult of the 1960s and the new frontier become the days of rage diminished the possibilities of what came next, stole somehow a motive force from the leading edge of time. And so we of later years still drift, circling like minor planets, that broiling yet inaccessible sun, too far away to enjoy its light and heat, but still bound by its gravity. Ice worlds of the outer edge, Apollo's orphaned children. But consider also that our memory, if not faulty, is certainly selective, often laying aside not only the multitude of small details, some scarcely noticeable, built toward the plenitude of time, but sometimes happenings so large, so charged with significance, it's natural to wonder how such things could ever be forgotten, ever be mislaid. In October 1961, Two years before the President's assassination, Father Patrick Payton of the Congregation of Holy Cross, known for his dictum, The Family That Prays Together Stays Together, organized a family rosary crusade at the polo field of Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. The preparations beginning that summer were enormous. 60,000 Catholic laymen one for every five Catholic homes in the archdiocese, went door-to-door, canvassing for attendees. Peyton himself, addressing inmates at San Quentin State Prison, pleaded with the men to pray for the success of the rally. On Saturday, October 7th, half a million people joined Father Peyton in praying the rosary in the park, double the original expectation. It stands as one of the largest gatherings of the decade, as large as the anti-war moratoriums and larger by far than the March on Washington in 1963 or the Human Bee in 1967, larger than Woodstock or Altamont in 1969. But it's scarcely remembered. Why? I believe in God. Father Peyton told the crowd. With that sentence, you have an answer to war, to famine, to death. It's a tremendous instrument God has placed in our hands. Afterward, having left the stage and humbled by the unexpected enormity of the event, he said, 
If my love could speak, it would be everything I could give in overwhelming gratitude for what's out there in that field. A sea of love. A sign that God will certainly spare our earth. That week, while the New York Yankees and the Cincinnati Reds battled for a World Series title, San Francisco police arrested comedian Lenny Bruce on charges of obscenity. A Bay Area father stabbed his son with a carving knife after the son, drunk, came after his old man with a screwdriver. Newspapers warned of teenager riots down in Los Angeles and that the United States, in the struggle against world communism, was considering the use of American troops in tiny beleaguered South Vietnam, half a world away. Assumption Sonnet, a poem by Stephen Cramp. From the gold gods speechless in Zytoon, from the scrub plain where a holly oak transfixes Fatima, from Tepeyac swirling with snakes, from lightning without rain on midnight Carmel, from the green glass Gave de Pau, from Levang, the napalmed canopy, deities jackknifed in banana tree bark hissing still. From earth, from men, from love and lack of love, our mother now escapes, but not by climbing plumes or scaling clouds. As she joins Christ, he brings her near yet to us, a secret only heaven keeps and then imperfectly. It's his delight to see her tend his body and his blood. In Dallas, I finished my rosary and left Dealey Plaza, the scene of the crime, and headed east along Main Street for a few blocks toward St. Jude Chapel. Inside, in the quiet away from the city streets, the risen Christ on sapphire tile work as in the realm of the heavenly throne, and a wrought iron baldacchino above the altar. I got in line for confession. When my turn came, I knelt in the dark and offered to the priest the same dull frailties, the same dashed hopes. There is nothing new under the sun. Sin, ultimately, is that great leveler of human experience, human ingenuity a democracy of the flesh, if deadly. There was a time when I felt sure the work of memory, especially as a writer, was in chronicling my own falling away, as though identity was a matter of deformation primarily, and entertainment even more so. I'm not so sure anymore. It will perhaps come as no surprise that the man in Christ I spoke of who saw the face of the Lord in the summer moon, was really me. Though all of that is now so long ago, it seems another life entirely. In considering such memories now, I'm much less preoccupied with my own failures, or even with my own seeking, my own stumbling toward the veil. Instead, I marvel at the willingness of the Lord, the good God of the universe maker and destroyer of worlds, 
to search for me in this tired world of flesh, to condescend, to clothe himself even in hallucinations for my sake. What is man, Lord, that you should keep him in mind? But still, allow me, though, if I may, in the spirit of dear departed Huxley, perhaps, to play the pedant myself for a moment, to delimit a few crucial points about all this history and memory as directly and cruelly as possible. For a thinking person, a half-century or more later, it's untenable to believe still in drugs, in free love, sexual liberation, the expansion of consciousness, the evolutionary next step. No, not simply untenable. It's witless. Those still peddling this folly or its legacy, whatever the updated rhetoric, are simply running interference for what's always been at the heart of this project, that of establishing unfettered appetite as the sole concern for human flourishing. I want what I want when I want it. On a human level, it's the logic of the toddler. Writ large, it's the logic of the locust, the logic of a plague. To exchange, in a few short years, a world where half a million might gather to pray the rosary for the strength and well-being of the American family, for a world in which the cultural drift of the nation would be determined instead by a bunch of bare-ass, sanctimonious, post-beatnik shitheads smoking dope in a park? For a world where a man journeying to the moon would be discouraged from reading to us the words of the gospel to contextualize the significance of our accomplishment. For a world in which both these stories, both these gestures toward the magnificence of an almighty God should travel unremembered in the flux of time, forgotten in favor of other, more worldly concerns. My friends, always pay attention to what people don't talk about or won't. What happened? You see, CBS News was right. It's about destinations. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, Wordsworth wrote, but to be young was very heaven. But we, myself, my wife, our cohort, we, the most aborted generation in American history, we were young instead at the end of the line, after it all came tumbling down, after the cornerstone was wrenched from its place and discarded, the wretched remnant of the scattered tribes. Is this the hard way you counseled, Dr. Leary? Is this what you promised? Meet it is I set it down that one may smile and smile and be a villain. Perhaps that's too harsh. It's certainly too harsh. Use every man after his desert, and who should scape whipping? But still, how could this happen? How could this come at us out of nowhere? But it didn't come out of nowhere, not really. None of this began in the 1960s. It had been drifting this way for decades, generations, centuries even, perhaps inevitably, 
like the slow death of stars on the outer edge of a galaxy. There is nothing new under the sun. But still, what next? That man in Christ, that same man who saw the Lord and the moon one summer night, when he, I, was 17 years old and just out of high school sometime in the mid-1990s. I worked in a restaurant, washing dishes. The cook in charge of the kitchen was a recovering drug addict, a brooding, angry man with melancholic eyes, black like pavement, and a half-crazed, joyless laugh. Ha! As though he intuited what laughter should sound like approximately, even as he remained at his core beyond all possibilities of mirth. After quitting heroin, for years he started each day with a half bottle of vodka poured into a pot of coffee and drank it straight down. One afternoon, a commercial came on the kitchen radio for some over-the-counter medication, something to take for motion sickness. And the cook said to me, You ever try that stuff? Ha! You take a pack with some fruit juice, right? You'll see things all right. Clear as day, you'll swear they're real. I spent a whole night at my buddy's kitchen table talking through the window to a Doberman pincher out on the roof, right? Wasn't even there. Ha! Tried to crawl out to it and everything. So, an hour or two later, young and stupid and always eager to get high, I swallowed a box full of pills and headed out on a drive with a comrade to pass the time. It was like driving headlong into hell. The landscape changed. Instead of the houses and fields and country roads of every day, there were inhumanly large and ancient stone castles dripping black water under dirty red skies. And as we passed, swarms of children formed of tiny particles of bending, swirling light leapt out at us from the trees and the brush, rose up like spirits on the center of the road, each carrying a submachine gun and firing at the car. But we were brave. We didn't care. We just strove straight on, straight through those little children, one by one. And the car shuddered with each impact, the babes disappearing in a stream of hot and bloody electric flashes. All I could move were my eyes. All I could do was stare. And when I looked down in my arms, my veins were glowing. They filled the car with a cool blue light that mingled with the lights in the dashboard with the last dying rays of the sun. The trip dissipated. The world coalesced, bit by broken bit. I got home, got settled, managed to avoid talking to my mother. Later, a friend told me, I thought we'd lost you, man. I thought you'd finally gone too far. And of course, I swore I'd never do it again, not in a thousand lifetimes, but two or three weeks later, that same urge was back, and I convinced another friend to take some more of those pills, suffered through another agonized night, sprawled on the couch, chain-smoking, 
convinced the black dwarf hidden behind the television set wanted to kill us, wanted to tear us limb from limb. So what's the insight, right? The teaching in the parable? What makes this anything more than an acid test recipe for your family's next whale watch? Thomas Merton wrote, If what most people take for granted was really true, if all you needed to be happy was to grab everything and see everything and investigate every experience and then talk about it, I should have been a very happy person, a spiritual millionaire, from the cradle, even until now. I might add to that, if figuring it all out on our own, cut off from the vine, if freedom, experience, liberation, the new frontier, means pushing ourselves to the breaking point, living among castles and confusion, chasing after naked existence. Shouldn't we be happy already? I mean, after nights like these, years like these, decades, what else can we do? But if we aren't happy, if we're still empty and lonely and unfulfilled, if we still have to work harder, go further, as Ken Kesey and his pranksters might have said, then the only logical outcome in all this struggle, the goal itself, the destination, is death. I thought we'd lost you. I thought you'd finally gone too far. Maybe not far enough. Not yet. Men must endure their going hence. August 9th, 2023, marked the 71st anniversary of the Anthology of American Folk Music, Harry Everett Smith's unparalleled pian to the pioneer age of American recording. The following, first of an occasional series exploring the ongoing legacy of the anthology, offers what Lidwine believes to be the first-ever history of Nelstone's Hawaiians, an Alabama duo whose song, Fatal Flower Garden, is the second track on the first side of the anthology's first volume, tucked between Dick Justice's Henry Lee and Clarence Ashley's House Carpenter. Gaudy woman lures child from playfellows, wrote Smith in his original liner notes for the track, stabs him as victim dictates message to parents. The present account, assembled from census rolls, newspapers, city directories, probate records, death certificates, marriage licenses, chamber of commerce brochures, and fire insurance maps, among other materials, is no less poignant a ballad nor strange. Pilgrims Toward a Jubilee a history of Nelstone's Hawaiians, the first of two parts. February 1928, in Mobile, Alabama. Carnival began that year, as was custom, with the Friday evening parade of the crew of Columbus, celebrating their sixth anniversary and offering as their theme the spectacle of St. George and the Dragon across seven floats. Swishing serpentine, sputtering flares and torches, 
Massed crowds in Bienville Square cheering, sidewalks crowded from curb to building, furnished the background for the colorful procession, reported the mobile news item. Beneath a flashing incandescent canopy, sending variegated cones of radiance into the carnival throngs, the parade wound through the business district and out Government Street, its fanciful floats looming in the red glow flung all about them by double files of Negroes carrying gaslights and red fire. The weekend brought a mask ball on the municipal wharf, boat races in the Mobile River, and a Sunday afternoon of band concerts in Bienville Square. Anticipating a record influx of revelers, the city's merchants advertised broadly for carnival candy, carnival costumes, tuxedos, ladies' handbags and hats, even carnival specials on good-used cars. The Jesse French & Sons Piano Company on St. Emmanuel Street promised a Mardi Gras sale of phonographs and six free Columbia, OK, or Victor records with any purchase, making special mention of Jimmy Rogers' newly recorded Blue Yodel, We Have It, You Should Have It, released only a fortnight before, the first of 13. On Monday, the year's King Felix III, Mad Monarch of Mirth, a young businessman named Pat Fior, arrived by Imperial Yacht at the Government Street docks, saluted his assembled subjects with cannon fire, and so unleashed a gargantuan pandemonium. Every vessel in port released the steam from their whistles. The fire sirens screeched insanely. Bells and chimes on all the public buildings and all the factory whistles created a babble of crazed noise. Klaxons, automobile horns, tin horns, clackers, cowbells, noisemakers of every description sent a chaos of happy noise echoing from the buildings. Fior, who made a name distributing Cyberling all-tread tires and whose shop was local sponsor of a weekly radio program of that company's vocal quartet, the Cyberling Singers, paraded to the Athelston Club on St. Francis Street, accompanied by a retinue of 15 knights, there to receive the keys of the city and greet his queen, Miss Martha Roberts, debutante, with a bouquet of Timothy roses. The infant mystics paraded that evening, and afterward, the king and queen were crowned. Mardi Gras itself, on Tuesday, saw in quick succession the afternoon parades of the Knights of Revelry, King Felix, and the Comic Cowboys. Public masking was encouraged, and stunt flyers from the Naval Air Station in Pensacola looped and dove overhead. City police broke up a fistfight between two unidentified maskers aboard a Knights of Revelry float. The sheriff of Baldwin County, on the eastern shore, announced the seizure of 2,000 pints of red liquor and a quantity of beer bound for Mobile's carnival crowds from bootleggers in South Florida. Today was a holiday, proclaimed the news item. Today, Pierrot and Purette, knights and ladies, pirates and Spanish caballeros, toreadors and colonial maids, Jenny Lynns and Ruth Elders, clowns and mummers, mingled in the streets, bands playing, orchestras blaring, Laughter and song and feasting were order of the day, for today is Mardi Gras Day. The close of carnival season 1928 was left, then as now, in time-honored fashion, 
for the parade and ball of the Order of Myths, the city's oldest mystic society, celebrating their 61st year, the Wizard of Oz, their theme. The Order's emblem float, however, offered nothing of Baum's vision, but instead a tableau of celebration and anticipation, older and far more penetrative, that of folly chasing death around the broken pillar of life, the world for a moment turned upside down. Are there other communities existent, a native son once noted of the scene, which would take such pains for one night's pleasure? After the crowds dispersed, a gang of prison laborers began the thankless work of cleaning up Bienville Square. Mobile lauded itself in those years as a picture of progress, an old city with new ideas and opportunities, with over 11,000 telephones in service, 80 miles of paved streets, 60 miles of streetcar lines, 124 churches, 64 for whites, seven theaters, sunshine an average of 270 days per year, and the most conspicuous landlocked harbor from Hampton Roads to the mouth of the Amazon. In 1928, Eddie and Marion Teal lived at 416 South Cedar Street, only a mile south of Bienville Square, close to the riverfront, in Eddie's job at the Alabama Dry Dock and Shipbuilding Company. The neighborhood was white and working class, boilermakers, carpenters, greengrocers, a miller at Alabama Corn Mills. Marion's widowed mother lived next door. The Teals, a young couple with an infant son, enjoyed entertaining and being entertained. A dozen or more guests would gather regularly at the Teal house or elsewhere in the neighborhood to eat and drink, play cards, trade jokes, play games like bunco or beanbag or jack-o'-lantern for prizes, then watch little Patsy Steber, a friend's daughter, demonstrate in her costume of pink spangled tarleton, the Charleston or the Black Bottom, before spending the balance of the evening dancing themselves to the music of a string band. Accompaniment for the evening of March 10th, 1928, a Saturday with showers forecast, was ably offered by two local men, Hubert Nelson and Douglas Touchstone, a guitar duo who for the promotional purposes of the Victor Talking Machine Company would soon be christened Nelstone's Hawaiians. Though Douglas Touchstone's background as a musician is uncertain, by 1928, Hubert Nelson already held an established local reputation as a performer. He was born in the Florida Panhandle on December 12, 1902, in a rented house in the tiny village of Baghdad, northeast of Pensacola. His father, Ed Nelson, who worked as a lumber marker for a sawmill, died in March 1910, when the boy was barely seven years old. Sometime thereafter, his mother, Hattie, who had already lost three children before the births of Hubert and his older brother, Eben, moved the family west to Mobile. By age 15, Nelson was working in the shipyard, first as a driller helper, then as a driller himself, before finally finding work as a boilermaker for the Gulf, Mobile, and Northern Railroad. He married Minnie Ray Lyle in January 1924, when he was 21, 
and she only 16. Her parents were musicians, and perhaps Hubert and Minnie met at one of the many Saturday night dances held throughout the area, at the Battle House Auditorium, or up in Whistler, or out on Crystal Springs Road. In the early 20s are two newspaper accounts, a christening party and a dance, where Nelson was present and likely provided the music, accompanied by his friend Louis Seymour. But then, in July 1924, in a weekend advertisement for the Bijou Theater in downtown Mobile, billed alongside a film lesson in Mahjong, came Nelson and Seymour, Hawaiian musical act, playing three shows daily. Hawaiian pointed to the manner in which Nelson played his guitar, laid flat across his lap, its open-tuned strings fretted with a steel bar or knife, its gliding inflections precursor to the dobro, lap steel, and pedal steel techniques since become ubiquitous in American music. The style, pioneered by native Hawaiian musicians in the late 19th century, was immensely popular throughout the United States in the early decades of the 20th, including South Alabama. In addition to acrobats, illusionists, trained dogs, blackface comedians, and the Dolly Dimple Girls, audiences at Mobile's vaudeville theaters could turn out to see Jonia and her Hawaiian orchestra, or Vieira's Hawaiians on their first Southern tour. For the Christmas season, Rice Mercantile Company advertised a Jazitha, the new one-string Hawaiian guitar, different from all other instruments. No lesson required. Anyone can play it. Everybody likes it. Local record shops stock titles like Hawaiian Hotel, Hawaiian Smiles, Aloha Land, and Along the Way to Waikiki. These numbers may be danced to or just listened to, read the notices, with the thrills that come with the Hawaiian whale. That a local boy should take it upon himself to master a pleasing popular style, however remote its origins, is not surprising. But Nelson was unusually successful. In April 1927, in the aftermath of the great Mississippi flood, a disaster which gave us Kansas Joe and Memphis Minnie's When the Levee Breaks and the Mississippi Heavy Water Blues of Barbecue Bob, Mobile organized a Red Cross benefit for the suffering and displaced, which included a parade through the city center, as well as a big nightclub review at the Sanger Theater. Noted in the show's promotions as stringed instrument artists and prominent in the vaudeville world in their line, Nelson and Seymour offered the crowds a night in Hawaii and shared the bill with, among others, a dozen blues yodelers and Mobile's own George Tremor, a blind pianist and noted Gennett recording artist. Later that year, on the last weekend in October, Nelson Seymour journeyed to New Orleans with a dancer named Bessie Boyd, the three booked to present a Hawaiian dancing and musical act at several venues there. The night they left, before catching the train, Nelson and Seymour entertained a small crowd at the Teal Residence on Cedar Street, a gathering of the Good Humor Social Club, the party given a Halloween motif, the house gay and black and gold streamers and jack-o'-lanterns. Joining them that evening with his guitar and harmonica, perhaps for the first time, perhaps not, was Douglas Touchstone. He was born in Columbus, Georgia on February 22, 1897, 
named James after his father, but called Douglas his middle name thereafter to distinguish the two. Shortly after the boy's birth, James Touchstone settled his family in Mobile, working there, first as a brakeman and then as an engine foreman, for the Mobile, Jackson, and Kansas City Railroad. In November 1908, James was killed in an accident at the rail yard, stumbling beneath the slow-moving engine, his skull crushed. His brother, John Touchstone, also a railroad man, negotiated an $800 settlement with the railroad and was authorized by the probate judge to invest the money in a home for James's widow, Lizzie, and her three young children, that they might have some place to shelter them and relieve them from paying rents, that they might thereby be enabled to give the whole of their time and labor to making a living for themselves. A three-room house was built for them on Bay Avenue near Bascom Racetrack on land purchased for $25 from the Sisters of the Good Shepherd. Aside from funeral expenses, paid directly by the railroad but deducted from the claim, the balance of the money went toward construction materials and household furnishings, as well as clothes for the children and a $16 insurance policy. As a teenager, Douglas found work as a tinsmith for the Lirio Turpentine Company alongside his older brother, Curtis. When the United States entered the Great War in the spring of 1917, he joined the U.S. Navy, training for six months at Norfolk and Charleston, before shipping out for the duration of the war aboard the USS Florida, escorting British convoys in the North Sea. Demobbed, he returned to Mobile, working again at Lirio for a time, but moving eventually to the shipyard as a pipe fitter and then as a burner, cutting up scrap metal out on Pinto Island. He married Minnie Bell Hansen in March 1920, with two children born in quick succession, but by 1925, the couple had separated. Minnie and the children returned to her parents, while Douglas lodged with his older sister, Viola, and her husband, a local cop named Ike Cruz, himself memorable for having failed to prevent the lynching of Richard Robertson in January 1909, having handed over his jailer's key to the mob come calling. The Cruz household at 309 South Bayou Street was only blocks away from the Teals at 316 South Cedar. Louis Seymour lived nearby as well, such proximity perhaps explaining Eddie and Marion's slate of entertainment. Hubert Nelson lived with his own family. By the late 20s, he and his Minnie also had two young children, much farther away on North Broad Street, in a rented bungalow behind the house of his brother Eben, the proprietor of a successful mobile radio shop. After the trip to New Orleans, Nelson and Seymour seem to have parted ways. There is no further mention to be found of the duo. Seymour and Touchstone, however, performed together at Marion Teal's 20th birthday party in November 1927. But then, on that aforementioned Saturday evening at the Teal house in March 1928, after punch and cake and 14 games of bunco, at the end of which Mrs. Ed Hamilton won a shoe tree and garter set, and Mr. Ralph Boys, a green and nickel ashtray. Dancing was indulged in, being furnished by Messrs. Touchstone and Nelson, who rendered several beautiful Hawaiian melodies. In 1928, the country was still a decade away from a standard five-day work week, and that boilermakers, burners, bakers, printers, painters, and their wives should choose 
in a rare moment of rest, cards and cake and dancing on a Saturday night with imagined waves of Waikiki, points towards something subtle, noble, and delightful in the human condition, that, with all due respect to the probate judge, no one can rightly live, giving the whole of their time and labor to making a living for themselves. God alone is worthy of supreme seriousness, Plato counseled, but man is made God's plaything, and that is the best part of him. Therefore, every man and woman should live life accordingly and play the noblest games and be of another mind from what they are at present. We ought to live sacrificing and singing and dancing, and then a man will be able to propitiate the gods. Reynolds Music House in Mobile counseled any and all in need of the shop's services, records, Kodaks, orthophonic Victrolas, Brunswick Panatropes, Radiola six-tube superheterodyne radio sets, including repairs, simply to look for the dog, a man-sized dog on a man-sized pedestal placed outside their storefront at 167 Dauphin Street on the south side of Bienville Square, a replica of the mongrel terrier used as trademark for the Victor Talking Machine Company of Camden, New Jersey. In early 1927, Reynolds approached Victor regarding the commercial potential of the city's homegrown musical talent. Knowing that Mobile is rich in the old-time spirituals and melodies of the colored race, Reynolds proclaimed in a subsequent advertisement, and that we would be making a distinct contribution to recorded music if we could preserve them on records, the official in charge of race recordings at the Victor Laboratories came here as our guest. So impressed was this official that he sent his recording outfit south for the first time in the history of the company. Those sessions, held in New Orleans and featuring two of Mobile's gospel quartets in a blues singer named Florence White, were supervised by the soon-to-be legendary Ralph Peer, who later that year would discover and record both Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family in Bristol, Tennessee. It was a similar effort on the part of Reynolds that brought Nelson and Touchstone to their first Victor recording session in the final days of summer 1928 in Memphis. Details are scant for the duo's work and whereabouts in the first part of that year. In April, a Sunday afternoon house party at a farm on the eastern shore, and in August, a show for the patients at Mobile's Cottage Hill Sanitarium with hula dancing provided by the inimitable Bessie Boyd. Howsoever they came to the attention of Reynolds, and therefore Victor, in the third week of September, the two traveled north to cut four sides at the Memphis Auditorium on September 21st, a Friday, part of Victor's months-long residency in the city, which in that week alone would see recordings done by Jimmy Yates's Bull Weevils, Slim Lamar's Southerners, Cannon's Jug Stompers, the Bethel Quartet, and even sermons by Elder Richard Bryant and Reverend Sutton E. Griggs. Their repertoire would consist of maybe eight or ten or twelve things that they did well, and that was all they knew, recalled producer Frank Walker, who managed similar sessions for Columbia in the 20s. When you had picked out the three or four best things in their so-called repertoire, you were through with that man as an artist. It was a culling job, taking the best of what they had. You might come out with only two selections, or you might come out with six or eight. 
but you got everything you thought they were capable of doing well and would be saleable, and that was it. You forgot about them, said goodbye, and they went back home. They had made a phonograph record, and that was the next thing to being President of the United States in their mind. Of the four songs recorded by Nelson and Touchstone that day, one, an original composition called Just Lonesome, was never mastered for release to the public, both takes listed as destroyed in the Victor ledgers, quite possibly for some technical imperfection in the recording. Adam and Eve was a variation on the chorus of a tongue-in-cheek vaudeville song penned in the teens by the songwriting team of Creamer and Layton, with Nelson alternating between Hawaiian soloing and singing lead, while his partner offered rhythm guitar and a high, quavering vocal harmony. What, what did he give Adam for Christmas? Is something that I don't understand. You never saw a picture of him with an overcoat, and you know he never wore a foreign hand. He came out. The final two tracks, You'll Never Find a Daddy Like Me and Northbound Train, were both sung by Touchstone. The former, a light-hearted double-time lament from the point of view of a jilted lover, and the latter, a version of a common tin pan alley and folk motif, that of the stern conductor assisting a little boy or girl without fare to get home, to reach a dying parent, or to beg a governor's pardon for a parent. Eventually released in May 1929 as the B-side to the bloody war of Jimmy Yates's bull weevils, Northbound Train was marketed by Victor as an old-time favorite. Though perhaps for a singer whose own father was killed by a train, the song offered something more than nostalgia. An oral context further complicated by the startling fact that, like the child in the song, Hubert Nelson's mother-in-law, Mrs. Florence Lyle, had herself once petitioned the Alabama governor for a pardon in August 1900 after her husband George was sentenced to six months in the Mobile County Jail for operating an illegal gaming table. Their songs sent by Victor to be mastered and manufactured, Nelson and Touchstone returned to Mobile, appearing less than two weeks later at an all-star benefit performance for the survivors of the great Okeechobee Hurricane that storm having recently devastated Central Florida, a disaster recounted by Zora Neale Hurston in her novel Their Eyes Were Watching God, as well as the Florida Flood Blues of singer Ruby Gowdy. The concert raised $1,000 for the Red Cross, and the duo, called Wizards on the Stringed Instruments, were highlighted in the subsequent notices, alongside blind George Tremor, always a mobile favorite, as deserving of special mention. In November, the men returned to Cedar Street for Marion Teal's 21st birthday party for the obligatory bunko and also a new game called Seeing America by Car, 
which garnered Mrs. Frank Stannard a box of lovely rainbow stationery. Several records were spun on the Victrola, but the remainder of the evening was spent in dancing to string music. In December, to close out the year, another benefit performance, this time the Kris Kringle Minstrel and Midnight Review for the Mobile Register Ladies of Charity Christmas Tree Fund, supporting the poor children of Mobile. Hubert Nelson and Slim Touchstone will show what an educated finger can do to a guitar. The show especially significant is the debut and advertisements of their new stage name, Nelstone's Hawaiians. Hey, you, what you gonna do for me? Head tucked between his knees. He asks his baby to call out the clouds, cause balls is all he sees. A prophet ain't got but a shekel to spare, a widow ain't got but weeds. But hand in hand, a pony up tea for Texas.
calling on a fallen for the queen of angels oh lord big bunny arrows is on your grave now dummy cut a piece of them for your enemy you promised her a face she's not Dallas, at St. Jude Chapel, I left the confessional and knelt in a pew, prayed my penance as I waited for Mass to begin. The line for confession dwindled, and eventually the priest himself came out from behind the door, Oz the Great and Terrible, unveiled at last, a tall, broad-shouldered man, barrel-chested, bull-necked, with blonde brush-cut looking like one of the Dallas cops in the news footage from 1963. But when he passed in front of the altar, he prostrated himself with arms outstretched and prayed silently for several minutes before rising and continuing to the sacristy to vest for Mass. So began in downtown Dallas the daily sacrifice, the faithful drawn together by the Eucharist, drawn by its hiddenness, its quotidian tastes of bread and wine, its incarnation a sign, a promise of the divinization of all things born to die, an apprehension through belief redounding upon this mortal world and so reordering, recreating what was fallen. To stand before the cross as blood and water spill from his side, to walk into the empty tomb and see the very vanquishment of death, to witness in the breaking of the bread his fellowship and presence. The lector stood before us and proclaimed the word. Ask now of the days of old, before your time, ever since God created man upon the earth. Ask from one end of the sky to the other. Did anything so great ever happen before? Was it ever heard of? Did a people ever hear the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you did and live? Or did any God venture to go and take a nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, with his strong hand and outstretched arms, and by great terrors, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. All this you were allowed to see, that you might know the Lord is God, and there is no other. In those same years when my wife and I were newly married, after the wars began, 
and the human toll became apparent. A young soldier, a local boy, was killed in Iraq a week or so before Easter, blown apart by a roadside bomb while on patrol outside of Baghdad. A small crowd gathered outside City Hall one morning, just a few blocks from our apartment, to watch his funeral procession pass on his way to the State Veterans Cemetery. The windows on the street side of the building were crowned with purple and black bunting, with twin fire engines parked end-to-end along the curb, their crews standing alongside, all of them wearing FDNY hats and chatting while they waited. The crowd swelled gradually as the mayor fielded questions from the press. A pair of mounted police positioned themselves at the mouth of a side street to control incoming traffic, and near them, a group of young girls in lacrosse jackets ran out into the road and back, out and back, keeping a lookout. Toddlers stood beside their parents, clutching at tiny American flags with clumsy fingers. The cowboy man was there, a well-known city wanderer, homeless by choice or circumstance, and dressed, as always, in a red chamois jacket with a black neckerchief and a gray range hat, khaki pants tucked into knee-high leather riding boots. He had a handmade rolled-up sign in one hand and kept checking the time, sticking his arm straight up until his sleeve fell back, then bending his elbow stiffly at a right angle until his watch was directly in front of his eyes, moving like a cheaply made robot. Everyone standing there regarded him nervously, wondering what the sign might say. But when the funeral procession finally started down the street toward us, he unrolled it, held it out in front of him at arm's length, and everyone nodded appreciatively. I'm sorry for you, Betty Ann, it read. Not in vain. A city police cruiser led the way, trailed by three dozen bikers in loose formation oddly comical with their cartoon pickle helmets and grave faces. Then a shining black hearse. The soldier's casket filled the back, draped in an American flag. A series of funeral limos. Inside one, the boy's mother wept and leaned hard on the woman beside her. Across the street, a crowd of people watched from behind the large plate-glass windows of an office building while below them, on the sidewalk, a UPS driver stood with her hand over her heart. A long line of family and friends passed in trucks and cars, some crying, some looking bored, all of them staring straight ahead. But one man stared out into the crowd for several moments, then nodded to us, held out his hand in silent thanks. And why was I there? Where did I fit in? I didn't know, except that it was my country and my people, my flag, all of it so very familiar and yet so very sad. I never saw a public memorial with pain so fresh, so immediate. But then, as I turned to watch the final cars pass, I saw a man next to me cross himself quickly. Father, son, 
and Holy Ghost, and my heart skipped, and the whole scene flipped. Suddenly I remembered God, and He was there, shining like shook foil from the street lights and the passing cars, haunting the handsome brick of the buildings, the city itself, and the air and sky, His angels passing to and fro among us on burning wings, confessing a throne beyond the cross, a kingdom beyond all flags and wars and nations, of being beyond the call of cold, raw death itself. But in those years when we were newly married, my wife and I spent our Sunday mornings sleeping in, the Lord's Day ignored, His sacrifice forgotten, a Sunday no different than any other day. And so time for us lost its Sabbath-centered intelligibility and thus its fulfillment, its logos obscured by our falling away, our apostasy. No wonder we got nowhere. Still, he searched for us, pleading, cajoling, in any way, in all ways, he could. That winter, in early 2004, we watched the wars play out on television. The weather was cruel. The snow that fell, immaculate for a day or two, quickly incorporated the dust and debris of the city froze into broken tracks of ice that left the sidewalks barely passable. The temperature plunged. The cold, aggravated by vicious winds gusting up and down the streets, carrying bits of trash and stray flyers from the campaigns still in town. That year was a primary year, an election year, and the city was, for a time, full of outsiders. The Democratic presidential candidates brought with them a horde of staffers, volunteers, celebrities, and assorted media types, many of them visibly dismayed by the necessity of time spent in such a peculiar backwater. People here are aggravating, a young campaign worker told me. They want so much from you. You call them two or three times, they still haven't made up their minds. They expect you to ask for their vote like it's something. One afternoon, out walking, I met a homeless guy on the street, out begging in the cold, but my only cash was loose change, and as I tried to hand it to him, I saw how chapped and swollen his hands were from being outside all winter. I didn't want to touch him, so I tried to drop the change into his hands from above, only he couldn't grab hold of it, His hands were too messed up, and the change spilled onto the sidewalk. We both got down on our hands and knees to pick it up. Thanks so much, man, he said. God bless you. But then, in the midst of all that suffering and discontent, from the New Yorker, March 1st, 2004, 
the magazine's cover that week, a painting of a tattooed, broken-toothed woman shielding her exposed right breast with an Academy Award statuette. What is depressing about the passion is the thought that people will take their children to see it. Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, not let the little children watch me suffer. How will parents deal with the pain, terror, and anger that children will doubtless feel as they watch a man flayed and pierced until dead? The despair of the movie is hard to shrug off, and Gibson's timing couldn't be more unfortunate. Another dose of death-haunted religious fanaticism is the last thing we need. In college, around the time we first met, my wife dreamt she talked to Gandhi. He told her she couldn't be Catholic anymore. She stopped going to Mass. She became as rootless and aimless as I was, as all of us were in those days, but still couldn't quite let go of Christ. The Lord caught in her heart like a stinger. She said, if he's not true, then nothing's true. And if he's not true, then he should be true. So in that late winter, 2004, when I was 26 years old and she just about to turn 25, my wife and I went to see Mel Gibson's new film, The Passion of the Christ. It is as it was, the Holy Father is said to have remarked, after viewing the film, which on some level is a ridiculous thing to say, hyperbole, however poetic, even if we do take his point to heart, that dear sainted man, nonetheless. The director, Quentin Tarantino, whose own work we'll have occasion to discuss in a later episode of this journal, called the film the most visual movie by an actor since Charles Lawton made The Night of the Hunter. Gibson himself admitted the passion was less of a movie and more of the stations of the cross, and so not really meant as entertainment, but rather as recollection, as pilgrimage, a bit of Jerusalem and its Via Dolorosa brought home to us, to those of us who cannot go, who will not go ourselves. And of course, none of us actually there, those 20 centuries ago, to witness the Lord suffer and die and rise. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed, who participate and so anticipate a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, beautiful as a bride prepared to meet her husband. When we saw the film, my wife was overwhelmed, overcome with weeping, remembering Jesus, that great love of her childhood when as a little girl each night she prayed the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, 25 times each, keeping track on her fingers, kneeling beside her bed, kneeling straight up because hunching over was lazy, weak, compared to his sacrifice. And when she finished, she made the sign of the cross and kissed his face and feet on the crucifix above her bed. The past drove rats' teeth into the gray pulp of the present. It exasperated. It sowed wild dreams. But with the passion, in 2004, in an age of war, for tens of millions of Americans, my wife included, 
It wasn't the ghosts of 1963 or 69 beckoning once again. It was the Holy Ghost in the first century. And unlike my failed gesture of anti-war protest, to recreate and represent the realities of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, to open ourselves to all the impossible promise of that past in the present, is the very essence of Christian witness. The sacrifice on Calvary, on Golgotha, become the daily sacrifice, prefiguring and participating in the eternal worship of the heavenly halls. Beyond the culture war, beyond the politics of celebrity and sexual license, this reorientation of profane time toward eternity was and is at the heart of elite disdain for Gibson's film. The same disdain that kept Buzz Aldrin from reading aloud from the gospel on the surface of the moon. The same disdain that ignores Father Peyton in his San Francisco Rosary Crusade. The same disdain that pushes us to forget any such public acclamation of our Lord and Savior. My friends, again, always pay attention to what people don't talk about. Only now, in the 21st century, that disdain is ascendant. The mystery of lawlessness described by St. Paul, that spirit of Antichrist, is already at work, always at work, alive in every age, and so prowling, even in our own, perpetually in opposition. In his bloodlust for a final combat, his longing to provoke somehow the parousia, the enemy tempts us toward confusion, toward preoccupation and distraction, away from the cross, replacing necessary memory with what is false. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. And so we exchange the light and heat of the terrible sun for the cold and lifeless reflections of the moon. Lunacy, so to speak. But sometimes, when the veil grows thin, well, sometimes things can change very quickly. When we saw the Passion, my wife was overwhelmed, overcome with weeping, remembering Jesus. But me? I didn't feel anything. I wasn't moved. I wasn't offended. I felt nothing. Nothing much at all. When we got to talking about it, all I could say from my perspective as an earnest but over-intellectualized hedonist is that much of it seemed quite charming. Love one another, and blessed are the meek, and such, but the rest of it was gibberish. What could it possibly mean for God to be a man, for a man to be God? I just didn't get it. I didn't believe it. And she answered, Well, then you're not a Christian. And I actually said to myself, Well, That's not good. 
I felt like a stranger in that moment. I knew I wasn't a Christian. I'd renounced the faith some years earlier, but still. I remembered as a boy, probably 12 or 13 years old, I started drawing crucifixions in ballpoint pen or pencil, sometimes three or four to a page, the nails and the blood and the crown of thorns, Christ by himself or with the thieves on either side. I don't remember why. I tried showing them to one boy. You can't do that, he told me. It's a sin. I tried to explain myself to him, but he wouldn't listen. I couldn't find the words. I remembered what my wife always said about Jesus. If he's not true, then nothing's true. And if he's not true, then he should be true. But still, what if he is true? What if it's all true? That night I began to read the Gospels. A few nights after that, after my wife was in bed, I knelt in a corner of our apartment with my grandfather's rosary I pulled from a box of family heirlooms. Wouldn't Father Patrick Payton be delighted? I knelt to pray, and everything changed. The gates of hell broke open, and a new life came tumbling in. The waves of death rose about me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The snares of the grave entangled me. The traps of death confronted me. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. The Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High let his voice be heard. The next morning, when I told my wife what happened, she answered with a dream she had in the night. She said, We were being chased, all of us, a whole group of us, and we got cornered inside a school, trapped inside a gymnasium or something. We were going to be fed upon. I didn't want to die, and so I smashed a window and got out, pulling some people through behind me. And we all ran to this car, hoping to get away. I started to drive, but then I remembered you, back inside the building. You hadn't followed us out. So I turned the car around and drove it through the side of the building, trying to get you back, trying to find you. What is man, Lord, that you should keep him in mind? It's possible, you see. It's possible to turn back. In downtown Dallas, at St. Jude Chapel, the scene of the crime, the mass finished, and we were dismissed. I walked back toward my car, anxious to head home, north to Oklahoma, to my wife and our children. On the street near the parking lot, I stopped to talk to a homeless guy begging for money. As I handed him a few bills, I shook his hand and asked his name. Well now, he chuckled, 
shaking his head and looking down at the pavement. That's complicated. This is Lidwine, Imagination for the Remnant, Season 1. Produced and directed by Brian Kennedy. Produced and engineered by Jonathan Hunt. With additional voice work by Rachel Kennedy, Keela Dawson, and the Kennedy Kids. And featuring the music of the Cimarron Kings. For show notes and more information on how to support our work, please visit our website at lidwinejournal.org. Drinks on Good Friday, cold beer at dawn. Forget the garden, get high tower on. For Judas and James, a hand or a sleeve. So drinks on Good Friday, just Jesus and Oh!